Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on making sense, the hub for JP Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In this episode of Market Matters, we'll hear from the market data and positioning intelligence teams within our data assets and alpha group. They'll be talking about key macro, micro, and political themes in the context of our high-frequency trading data and proprietary signals from JP Morgan's markets business. Hi, I'm Eloise Goulder, head of the Data Assets and Alpha Group here at JP Morgan. Today, I'm joined by Krupa Patel, who runs the International Market Intelligence Team within our wider group and is also the author of many of our data intelligence products. The last time I interviewed Krupa, which was around seven weeks ago, we debated whether it's now time to look past inflation. Back then, inflation concerns really were dominating client discussions, and we hadn't yet seen a sharp fall in US CPI. So it felt like a strong statement, but a very relevant question to be thinking about looking beyond the elevated inflation prints. But since then, a lot has happened. First of all, the October US CPI print, which came out in early November, was much lower. It was down to 7.7% year-on-year versus just over 9% back in June. And then alongside that, we've seen a very strong rally in equity markets, with the MSCI world up around 14% from the early October lows. And the question that's really been dominating our client discussions recently, particularly for those of us sitting in London, has been why European markets have rallied even more than US markets over the last two months or so. The euro stocks has gained over 20% in local currency terms over that period. And in fact, it's gained almost 30% in dollar terms because the euro, of course, has rallied at the same time. If a lower October US CPI is the reason markets have been rallying, then why would European markets rally even more, particularly given that European inflation prints have actually continued to tick higher through September and October? So have European equities now rallied too far and too fast? That's the question I'm really looking forward to addressing with Krupa today. So Krupa, thank you so much for being here once again. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Eloise. So let's start by taking a step back and discussing what we think has driven this outperformance in European equities over the past two months. As I said, the Eurostoxx 50 is up nearly 30% in dollar terms over that period. It's a pretty staggering move. Sure, that's a great question, Eloise. As you mentioned, the strong bounce back in European equities in the face of growing stagflationary headwinds over the last couple of months has indeed caught many by surprise. I think there have essentially been three reasons behind this surprising outperformance of Europe. One, a low starting point given European markets had fallen by about 35% in dollar terms in the year to date to the end of September. And as a consequence of this, investor sentiment and positioning on the region had gotten to extremely low levels. Now, as you'll remember from the podcast we recorded on the European macro and gas risks in mid-summer, investor sentiment on the region's markets throughout summer had been extremely depressed. Owing to all the Nord Stream cutoffs that we'd had from Russia over that time period, against a backdrop of deteriorating growth data, was leading to concerns over a winter of strict gas rationing measures ahead for Europe. 
Investor positioning, which had already fallen to very low levels in the aftermath of the war in Ukraine, fell further through the summer. And at its worst point, we'd seen 39 consecutive weeks of outflows across mutual funds and ETFs from European equities. So this, combined with the fact that European markets are generally higher beta, so tend to rally more in an up market, contributed to this really strong rebound that we saw over the last couple of months. Secondly, there was a bunch of fiscal stimulus measures, notably cost of living support packages that were announced across several key European countries towards the end of summer, which somewhat contributed in delaying the recessionary drag the economy was facing from rising inflation. Third, and perhaps more crucially, the worst case scenario for gas rationing that many were fearing didn't really materialize as the start of winter turned out to be milder than usual. And this contributed massively to the 71% fall in gas futures that we saw from their peak in August. And actually, at the margin, geopolitical news flow has been positive with Ukraine gaining significant victories as well and headlines over further escalation on the Russian and the Western side have been much more muted over the last two months. So in summary, it was really this combination of very depressed investor sentiment and positioning, together with the relative good news we had on the fiscal stimulus and lower gas prices front, that drove Europe's outperformance. Thanks, Krupa. That's really helpful context. Haven't we also seen marginally better Q3 earnings in Europe versus the US? Do you think that's also been a contributing factor in driving European outperformance recently? Yes, it's a great point. Stocks did surprise positively in Europe versus negatively in the US. However, I'd argue a large percentage of those beats came as a result of a weaker euro in Q3 and the energy sector as well. Now, if you X these out, and of course the euro has been much stronger through the fourth quarter, I don't think European earnings would have improved. Yes, that's a fair point. So moving forwards, I guess the key question is where next? Is there room for Europe to continue outperforming from here? Thanks, Eloise. So yes, this is the key debate we've been having with a lot of our clients lately. I think it's easy to look at Europe's recent strong outperformance, especially as there seems to be growing optimism around the end of the war being near, and wonder if what we've seen in the last couple of months is the start of a new bull market for the region's equities. I don't think so. And in line with the cautious view from a number of our senior strategists across JP Morgan, including Marko Kalanovic and Kuram Chowdhury, believe that it makes sense to position for a reversal in European equities here. So really, four key reasons why I think so. Firstly, hedge fund flows and positioning point to near-term downside after recent extreme short covering. Now, based on our positioning intelligence team's data, net hedge fund flows across European equities have turned positive recently after a strong bout of short covering of around three standard deviations magnitude around the middle of November. And now, as a consequence of this, positioning is largely neutral on the wider region. Now, while we've seen extreme levels of short covering across U.S. equities too, the notable development in case of Europe has been the sharp pickup in positioning we've seen among CTAs, European equity positioning. Based on the data that we track for this group of funds from our structuring team, and also from our flows and liquidity strategists in research, NECOS, 
CTAs have now turned net long on European equities, while they remain net short on US stocks. Positioning across the SX5E and DAX indices in particular has increased fairly sharply recently, and it's now at the highest level in a year. Secondly, European equities now look extremely tactically overbought versus history. So post this recent bout of strong art performance that we saw, European equities are now starting to look quite stretched on some of the market technical metrics that we track. So for example, SX5E's 14-day RSI recently hit the most tactically overbought level since the dot-com bubble. And if you look at the index's breadth as well, it's now looking fairly elevated. So for example, the 50-day breadth of the SX5E is now at 100%, suggesting that all stocks in this index are now trading above their 50-day moving averages, and that's the first time this has happened since June 2020. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, European inflation remains stubbornly elevated, and it's still rising versus the continued moderation that we're seeing in the U.S., So if you look at the euro area HICP, it still stands at a four-decade high of 10.7% year-on-year versus the 7.7% print that we recently saw in the US. With Europe on the brink of a recession versus the same not forecasted for the US until the fourth quarter of next year on our economist's forecast, the continent's still elevated inflation poses a greater downside risk for its growth trajectory, I'd say. And finally, with bond yields continuing to peak across most parts of the developed world, as recession risks are increasingly being priced into bond markets, I think Europe's recent outperformance may not last for very long. I always like to think of Europe as a value stock, given its high exposure to areas like financials and commodities, and the US as a growth stock, given it is overweight tech. And hence, peaking bond yields may not bode very well for European equities going forward. The other issue for Europe relative to the US is the prospect of a sooner recession in the region. Our economists are forecasting the euro area to be in a recession early next year, with growth contracting in both the fourth quarter of this year and the first quarter of next year, and then they expect growth to stay challenged through the remainder of 2023. And in the US, by contrast, as I was saying earlier, our economists don't forecast the recession to arrive until the fourth quarter of next year. So all in all, I'd say that post the recent round of extreme short covering that we've seen amongst hedge funds, and the fact that positioning across some pockets of investors, notably CTAs, has now risen to one-year high levels, I think Europe's recent outperformance may be at risk in the near term, especially amidst rising inflation and recession-related headwinds. Thank you, Krupa. Well, that's a lot of headwinds that the European markets are facing. And I hadn't realized that stat that the Eurostock's 14-day RSI has recently hit the most tactically overbought level since the dot-com bubble. But Krupa, how does that tie in with our house view? Is it consistent with our research analyst view? Yeah, so as I was saying earlier, our strategists, including Marko Kalanovic and Kuram Chaudhry, are also bearish on the prospects for European equities. Marko is concerned about the recent sharp rise that we've seen in CTA positioning in Europe against this backdrop of stagflationary headwinds as well. Um, And Kuram's models, particularly his QMI, remain deep in contraction territory and are still suggesting staying out of the market. 
Thank you, Krupa. And can we just turn to Asia? European markets are more exposed to Asia and China than US markets. So do you think that Europe's rally over the last two months is also a reflection of investor optimism, perhaps in the Asia region? And what's your outlook more generally for Asia and China equities at this stage? Thanks, Eloise. And I agree. China is an important theme to track currently for global markets, particularly for Europe, which is the most China-exposed stock market and economy in the DM world. So with regards to the recent headlines in China, obviously we've had a lot of contrasting developments on the COVID front over the last month or so. The very strong bounce back in Chinese and Hong Kong stocks that we saw up until mid-November was largely on the back of significant optimism around investors around reopening, post a number of positive headlines from the authorities around a relaxation of their zero-COVID strategy. A material injection of liquidity into the troubled property market, together with further green shoots on the tech regulation side around the same time, were also key in lifting sentiment further. But in the last couple of weeks, we have seen things take a turn with new lockdowns across the country. And as a consequence of that, we now have a fifth of the country under lockdown. So what really is the path for the Chinese economy from here onwards in light of these developments and what impact would it have on European markets is the key question. I think a lot is still up in the air with regards to China policy and its growth trajectory over the coming year. While a number of our strategists internally are bullish on the reopening potential for the Chinese economy, especially as authorities continue to stimulate the economy through further monetary and fiscal loosening, a lot of the investors that I speak to argue that they need to see a more definitive relaxation of zero COVID before they can position for a sustainable rebound in China. And for Europe in particular, even if there does seem to be a strong recovery in Chinese growth next year, the problem is that this tailwind will largely be offset by the domestic recessionary headwinds the region is facing at least until the first half of next year. Plus, any China-related tailwinds will largely be felt in the commodity sectors, and both energy and mining have been material outperformers in Europe this year, and hence are now vulnerable to demand destruction as we look into a recessionary 2023. Great. Thank you so much, Krupa. It's such a tricky backdrop for investors to navigate as we look into early next year. But my final question for you, can we just isolate the UK? And could you explain if you still have a preference for the UK's FTSE 100? Or does your cautious stance apply to the entire European region? Sure. Thanks, Eloise. So in line with our strategist, Mislav, I'm still constructive on FTSE 100 into 2023, given 70% of its revenues come from overseas, meaning that the market is largely shielded from the still strongly rising inflation and imminent recession in the UK. And also, it benefits from the recent weakness that we saw in the pound. It's really the more domestic segment of the UK market, i.e. the FTSE 250, which in line with Mislav, I remain the most bearish on, given the tricky growth and inflation dynamics that we face in the British economy, at least in the near term. So I'd say the best way to play the bearish stance in Europe that I outlined earlier would be through either the SX5E or SXXE indices, which tend to include Eurozone equities only. Great. Thank you, Krupa. So before we wrap up, let me try to summarise your key arguments today. 
European markets have rallied over 20% from their late October lows. And in fact, they've rallied almost 30% in dollar terms over the period. And Krupa, you think that a large part of this outperformance reflects, first of all, the low starting point and extremely low investor positioning and sentiment. Second of all, fiscal stimulus measures announced across a number of European economies. And then third of all, the fact that the worst case scenario for gas rationing across Europe in the context of a milder winter hasn't really materialised. It's also worth noting that European Q3 earnings were marginally better than consensus expectations. And then in terms of your views from here, Krupa, you remain cautious, which is consistent with the views from our strategists Marco and Kuram for Europe. You've been highlighting that European inflation remains stubbornly elevated, which is in some contrast to the US, and also that the growth outlook remains weak, with our economists expecting a recession at the end of Q1 next year and growth staying challenged through the rest of 2023. And you're flagging that European equities look tactically overbought and indeed overweight from CTA investors at this stage. And then looking to Asia, China reopening could be a tailwind for the global economy and for European companies exposed to China. But there's a lot of uncertainty as to the timing of this. So you think it's too early to play this through European equities right now. Does that sound about right, Krupa? Yes, exactly. And that's a great summary. Thanks, Eloise. Well, thank you once again, Krupa, for sharing your views on the European market today. I know this question as to whether European equities have rallied too far, too fast is coming up a lot with our clients, and it's always great to hear your views. It's a pleasure. Thanks again for having me, Eloise. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to this bi-weekly podcast from our group. If you'd like to explore our wider team content further or indeed get in touch with us, please take a look at our website at jpmorgan.com market data intelligence. There you can always send us a message via the contact us form. And with that, we'll close. Thank you. If you're enjoying this conversation, you can subscribe as well as our other podcasts to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Follow JP Morgan's Making Sense on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of JP Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates. Together, JP Morgan. They are not the product of JP Morgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Reference products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. JP Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures forward slash sales and trading disclaimer.